This is Legal and Compliance Insights from Control Risks, a global specialist risk consultancy. This is the podcast helping you navigate the legal and compliance landscape wherever your business takes you. I'm Maria Knapp, a partner at Control Risks, and this episode is part of our ongoing series on ESG. In previous episodes, we've covered organizational structures for ESG, as well as how to calibrate your supply chain due diligence program. You can listen to those episodes by visiting our website and searching Legal and Compliance Insights wherever you get your podcasts. In today's episode, we're focusing on issues that challenge organizations' approach to investigating breaches to governance standards and social impact, specifically misconduct and human rights. We've seen over the past years an increase in the number of whistleblower allegations relating to misconduct outside of the financial crime arena, and also NGO-led claims and class actions against companies related to alleged breaches of human rights, including fundamental human rights, labor rights, security and human rights, mistreatment, discrimination, but also workplace harassment. My colleagues and I will discuss the specific considerations for these investigations when thinking about things like evidence gathering, process, stakeholder rights, as well as some of the sensitivities that make these investigations different and how to plan and resource with those in mind. I'm with two of my colleagues who have a combined 30 years experience investigating these matters across the region. Michael Zimmern is the partner for forensics for the EMEA region and is here with me in London. Hi, Michael. Hi, Maria. Joyce is the principal for forensics for Africa and joins us today from our office in Johannesburg. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Maria. Really good to be chatting with you today. Looking forward to a really good discussion. These are, as I've said, very particular matters, and it's important that companies be on top of listening to these issues and responding to them, which begs a question, how do companies typically hear about these issues? Joyce, can you tell us a little bit about what sort of processes and programs companies need to have in place to make sure that they do? So typically these issues would come through different mechanisms that companies have in place. One of the most common structures that are in place are things like whistleblower lines that allow for messages to come through to a responsible person within the organization, receive complaints, and then have a structure in place, the processes and procedures in place that deal with how they manage reports that are received. This could go as far as having reports coming in through anonymous channels or reports that come through perhaps by email where an individual is happy to share their identity and then disclose information that's come to their attention that they would like to bring to the attention of of management. The other ways that you could receive these reports is through grievance mechanisms Depending on the organization and the layout of the organization, this could vary. And it depends on what the actual needs of the organization are in the way that they implement the grievance mechanisms that allow them to also receive information. And this could be open not just to employees of the organization, but to also external parties such as stakeholders that access the organization's premises, for example. 
and exist or coexist with, with the organization at hand. That kind of value chain aspect or kind of third-party stakeholder aspect is sometimes overlooked by organizations. Do you see any other sort of bottlenecks or, or challenges to organizations setting up the kind of structure that you've described? There are many bottlenecks. One of the ones that's quite a challenge is in the way that the mechanism is set up to make, possibly make it difficult for reports to be received. A common example would be, say, setting up the grievance mechanism in a rural area where people don't have access of reach, for example. They find it hard, say, to get transport to the area that has the, the grievance mechanism in place. Say, for example, if it's set at the premises where someone has to come all the way to the premises to make a report. And this we'll talk about hopefully later in this podcast for sensitive aspects, say sexual harassment. If someone within a community has been sexually harassed and they live far from the village or the area where the company is based, them reaching that area and then accessing the grievance mechanism can be quite difficult. And so companies need to make sure that they have mechanisms that allow for very cheap use and then take into account the area that they live in and the access and the ease of use of these mechanisms for their stakeholders at large. Yeah, quite practical kind of tactical considerations for companies when it comes to these mechanisms. And definitely let's pick up on that point you raised a bit later on the kind of particular sensitivity of some matters and and some of the local nuance that comes with that. I want to turn to the question of stakeholders. You've already mentioned, and we've, we've talked a little bit about kind of people external to the organization. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about the key players in these situations? because they're slightly different from other types of investigations. Joyce described some of the internal routes that might surface these allegations. One of the things we're seeing is increasingly an awareness in the public domain of these kind of issues and people's concerns. And that's connected to changes in communication methods and particularly social media. I think both increasing the awareness people have of maybe how they've been treated and how they should assess that treatment against what other people are talking about, but also feeling more empowered to share and communicate those grievances. And and what we're seeing then is that information can come through things like Twitter, but also be shared through the release of material either directly to journalists or to civil society groups, or sometimes even on WhatsApp chat. And that's quite relevant when we talk about then the parties who are involved in dealing with a case and responding to a case. I would say you you would still have some of the typical parties that you would see in a normal investigation, lawyers, internal groups within the company, maybe media advisors, and also if the matter's public, the media themselves. What we would then see as maybe additional or supplementary parties involved include wider stakeholder groups, both within the organization, so employees, but also outside the organization, including customers, supply chain, shareholders, and other stakeholders. And one of the reasons for that is that these kind of issues become reputational to the company. They're, they're no longer kind of mitigating financial loss or managing a regulatory concern. They're, they're dealing with the identity of the company and the values of the company. There's an interesting article by the Harvard Business Review in 2018, which found that people see, for example, a sexual harassment problem as more indicative of a culture problem than a claim of fraud. And I think that explains why that some of the additional stakeholders become involved. 
That makes perfect sense, Michael. And I think you've raised a great point there about how incendiary these issues can be for companies and go right to the core of their reputation. And also partly because of the stakeholders involved, Joyce raised earlier some of the factors that means that these kinds of investigations can require examination of pretty emotive and and sensitive matters. I'm aware that based on kind of the work that you've done, some of those matters can have limited tangible evidence, sometimes contradictory accounts. Can you tell me, Michael, a little bit more about how you treat these issues differently from an investigation's point of view, from other misconduct issues like maybe more vanilla financial fraud matter? Yeah, it's it's interesting this because, I mean, the role of investigator is to identify and then piece together the different bits of information and, and be able to tell a story with the facts. And the challenge historically with some of these cases has been that there are fewer facts available with which to tell that story. And what we found is that in particular, if there is less data points that you can use, then it becomes much more a, a comparison of the accounts of the different people involved. And sometimes it's very hard to to come to a view. In those circumstances, the interview element of the of the work is sometimes critical. What we're finding is increasingly there are other data points that you can gather, be that WhatsApp chat, emails, or indeed other documents, which maybe, for example, if you're talking about the relationship between two people, are there hotel invoices? Are there other other pieces of information which go to telling the story of that relationship? Increasingly, it's important to try and build that wider picture, as well as the data points that maybe relate to the specific interaction, which maybe would only be described by the individual's accounts. I mean, that does sound like you need to go into these kinds of investigations a little bit more kind of with a blank slate and, and more creatively. And, and Joyce, I wanted to turn to you for the same question, or rather just thinking about Michael's response, how that question of the sensitive matters and, and, the, and the difference of evidence might impact kind of how you set the objective or the goal for these investigations at the outset. These cases, like Michael mentioned, have less data points to work with. And so from the offset of the investigation, it's really best to go at it with a broad view of the objectives that you want to achieve at the end of the investigation, which typically for any investigator would be to get hard facts or hard evidence to support any findings that you have. Literally work your way through from a broad spectrum and narrow your way down through how you gather information, through the interviews, how you sequence the interviews that you conduct who you engage with when and in what contextual circumstances that is fitting and right for the sensitivities of the issues that you're working through. And then finally, attaching those to the hard evidence that you have, like Michael mentioned, whether it's receipts from a hotel, whether it's communication that you would have picked up, if you're able to image laptop, cell phone servers even that provide you with those extra bits of data sets that you can attach to the information that's provided to you through the interviews that you conduct and then narrow your way literally down to having an evidence bucket that has tangible facts attached to the information that's provided to you through throughout the investigation, obviously taking into account all the complexities that come with discussing some of these very sensitive issues as you navigate your way through these investigations. I wanted to 
hone in a little bit more closely on on human rights, which is only one aspect of the issues we're talking about, an increasingly challenging one. Now, human rights are obviously not a new issue for business since the UN Human Rights Council endorsed UN guiding principles of business and human rights at the UNGPs in 2011 businesses have been, I guess, not only on notice, but actually actively engaged in in meeting international standards. That's meant for businesses preventing and mitigating actual and, and potential negative outcomes for rights holders. The regulatory trend at the moment, and I'm thinking, for instance, tightening EU and, and US kind of Magnitsky type sanctions regimes. I'm thinking about the human rights due diligence and disclosure requirements coming through the EU and, and the SEC. Signals the the importance for companies to be really on top of these issues throughout their business and value chains and and to be tracking these issues, monitoring, responding to them. We know, again, from some of the work that you've been involved with, that the most severe issues can occur in environments where there are other concurrent challenges that could be security, governance, poverty. You've mentioned earlier, Joyce, kind of even some of the really localized issues like access to the people who are rights holders or potential victims. Some of these issues are also not recent, so they they might date back some time. And it throws up, I guess, other challenges with regards to investigations. So my question back to you, Joyce, is how would you kind of organize this or, or kind of classify these challenges? And could you tell me a little bit about when it comes to these issues, how you've overcome them in investigations with clients? So like you mentioned, they're, they're, very, they're very complex challenges that some of these matters lead you to engaging with. And from the onset, some of the critical areas that we find are quite challenging is, first of all, the landscape of the environment that you're going to be investigating in. With these human rights-related cases, you'd find that we pretty much end up having to support clients in some cases, very remote areas. There is serious access to access to individuals that we need to speak to. There's community heads that we need to engage with. There's security risks that we need to assess and make sure that we comply and get in place to secure the investigation team that's going. Is that all happening at the kind of planning phase of the investigation? This this is all taken into account as we planning the investigation, would understand what the dynamics are on the ground in the areas that we're going to to conduct the investigation. And that in essence allows us to put together an investigation team that's suitable to support with the investigation that we're going to manage for our clients. You mean down to the individuals in the investigative team? Right to the individuals. What kind of languages do they speak? What's the cultural context in the areas that we're going to conduct the interviews? What is the team structure that we have in place really for purposes of certain sensitivities attached to what individuals in our teams can deal with those sensitive areas that we cover off in the investigations. So that all happens during the planning. And to be quite honest, Maria, as you go on with the investigation, that could change because the realities on the ground allow us to address 
what we find and how we manage the team that's been deployed. And we have to keep making sure that the approach that we have best suits the way that we execute the engagement. What Joyce has described there is the context in which some of the human rights cases might occur, where an organization maybe in a country where security and governance challenges exist has to go and create its own operating environment. Looking at conduct more broadly, we also see that there's often a context in which these issues arise. And one thing we've noticed is that many times when we're engaged to investigate a fraud or a corruption matter, at some point during the investigation, we will often encounter bullying, harassment, or some other kind of misconduct, which has been taking place alongside the fraud or financial crime issue, and which maybe helped to create an environment of fear or favoritism or lack of challenge, which was a, a, a good breeding ground for some of the other things that we've seen. And historically, companies maybe have, have focused on looking at the financial loss and the fraud element and not really tackled some of the underlying conditions, which it's enabled these things to happen. So I would say there's pretty much always a context for some of these cases. And it's important, going back to your question on objectives, to really think through, well, what are we trying to achieve here? That goes back to that point, I guess, we opened with around the fact that these are distinct issues, but often interconnected. As you're saying, that breeding ground is important to keep in mind. And I know that some of the work that you each have done, you've kind of gone in trying to answer one question and, and come out actually with a much clearer view of where there have been more systemic governance failures that were they resolved or if they're resolved could really close some of those gaps. Joyce, I wanted to, I mean, there's, we've covered quite a lot of ground here in terms of the particular sensitivities of these issues, the complexity of the stakeholders and the objectives that companies have to meet in order to really preserve and guard their, I guess, business critical kind of reputation in, in, in the matter of good governance. It might be helpful, Joyce, if you could kind of give listeners, I don't know, maybe sort of three key takeaways from what we've discussed today. I think one point that would be great to mention is whistleblowers in respect to how we manage them with cases that have to do with human rights or conduct-related matters and how we safeguard those and how we strategically put in place procedures that adhere not just to local legislation on the treatment of whistleblowers and the protection of whistleblowers, but internally within organizations, how we deal with how we have processes in place to protect whistleblowers that support us in these investigations. So just in line with that, we can provide strategic advice on measured responses and proportionate measures in place, including investigative steps tailored towards the specific nature of the allegations. So Maria, I, I guess three top tips that we can offer our listeners today is to Make sure that they respond quickly and appropriately with due consideration for the rights of all the individuals involved and with an appreciation of applicable laws and regulations. Secondly, demonstrate the allegations that have been investigated fairly, independently and objectively, taking into account all relevant events and circumstances. And lastly, carefully consider any public response to allegations to avoid jeopardizing the investigation. Michael, before we close off, is there anything that you want to add and make sure listeners keep in mind on these issues? Particularly in, in the world in which many of these allegations play out in public, there's a huge pressure on organizations to, to engage in a public response. And I think it's very important that people think carefully about how to do that, because 
once things are said, it's very hard to take them back. That's often your role, isn't it, Michael, to kind of come in and just help people to take a pause and, and plan and think through those steps carefully in the, in the heat of these issues. Well, thank you very much to both of you for sharing your insight. As I said, when I introduced you, you have a wealth of experience handling these issues. And I know that the kind of input that you've brought to bear today comes from that on the ground experience. I'm really uh, grateful to have had you both in this discussion. So thanks so much, Joyce. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me. It's been really good chatting. And thanks, Michael. Thanks, Maria. If you're in need of any support relating to the topics covered in today's episode, or are simply interested in hearing more about our range of legal and compliance services, do get in touch. And before you go, make sure to subscribe. 